All right, so last week as we covered chapter four and five, I mentioned that turning the page in the history of the nation of Israel heavily as we get into chapter five. Chapter five is David now being anointed as king by the people, already anointed by God. He was already anointed by the tribe of Israel. Now he's anointed by all the tribes of Israel as the king of Israel and all that imagery. We see him establish his kingdom now in Jerusalem. He was in Hebron for seven and a half years, and now he has conquered Jerusalem. Going to be very important. Uh, Brings up the name of Jerusalem in chapter 5. Brings up this other title for Jerusalem, which is Zion. Brings up another title, which is the city of David that we see throughout the word of God moving forward. We watch the enemies be defeated. David recognizing in his heart and in his life that the Lord has fulfilled many promises already for him and establishing him there in Jerusalem. And now as we turn into chapter 6, we're watching David living actively in the anointing and calling that God has given him in his life. He knows that he has been established as king and in this community And as he is sitting in his heart and, you know, the administration is being established, his home is being built, the city of David is being built, all of this that's going on, we now get a snapshot of David's heart and his desire for his relationship with the Lord to continue to grow. And it's all revolving around the bringing of the ark of God that's in a tent in Kiriath-Jerim, and it's been there for about 70 years. And it seems to really have faded, that religious worship seems to have faded out of the culture while Saul was king. But here's David desiring to bring this box this religious box into Jerusalem, and we're going to get into these definitions this morning. How many of you have moved in your life? How many of you have moved many times in your life? How many of you have moved many times with a church in your life? I never have. I made Kirk and Robert give me the list. So our congregation starts a Bible study in 76, I'm guessing. Is that true, Joan? Kirk doesn't know. The ink happened in 1977. Church started meeting in an ele- Chestnut Elementary School, moved to a Marriott Hotel, all both of those down around Perimeter Mall. Eventually moved into the pastor's basement. Out of the basement move, it says Richway Store in Roswell in the basement of a store. No idea where that is. Hammond School in Sandy Springs. Then it moved, you guys bought some property at Mount Perrin. I can't even read my own hand. Oh, so you guys bought some property, yeah? And then bought a office park in Roswell. And then this church sold their property there. And well, not this, two churches, one Calvary North and then Calvary Chapel of Roswell, which was this one, both sold their properties. The churches blended together and rented a warehouse somewhere over here on Union Hill. Have no idea which one it is. Bought this property of 99, built this building in 2003, and here we are. Does that sound exhausting to you? Sounds exhausting to me. I've never been part of a church move. You know, our congregation was established in its building where we went in Salt Lake. 
by the time we moved here, this congregation is already established here on this property in this building, and we get to sit in the benefit of all of this history. I bring up all these different locations for our own congregation and ask about your moves, because it gives, it gives some of that agitation in regards to this portable religious tent that God commanded the children of Israel to build when they were coming out of Egypt. God has delivered them out of Egypt. He commands this structure to be built because he tells them in all of its imagery, this is where I'm going to dwell in your midst. This is where I'm going to meet you. And there's all kinds of rules and regulations associated with it. For the next 400, from that point, you got 400, 500 years roughly after God has brought the children of Israel into the land, the tent has been in different locations. And during Saul's reign, the Philistines captured the ark because they took the ark into battle with them as this religious icon. The Philistines capture the Israel's God, so to say. They end up sending it back, and they don't really know where it's going to land because Shiloh got destroyed, and it lands in this community of Kiriath-Jerim. So that's where the ark has been. So now that David is established, his heart is yearning for God to now fulfill other portions of his word to establish himself in his name, in the place that he chose, which is the city of Jerusalem. So I mentioned last week that you have to be cautious when you read the Bible, when it talks about Jerusalem, when it talks about Zion, when it talks about the city of David, you need to ask yourself the question, what's the context of the passage? Is this talking about the literal physical city? Or is this talking about the spiritual, eternal, prophetic city that God has promised that is going to come in the future the new Jerusalem where we are going to abide in his presence for all eternity. Right now in this passage, we're talking about a literal physical city. So here's David's heart. We're not going to get into 1 Chronicles, but 1 Chronicles gives similar information to our passage and gives us a lot of additional information that we just don't have the time to read today. But I would encourage you to go back and read 1 Chronicles 13, 15, and 16 after this morning because you get, there's a lot more emphasis. I'll pull some of the main lines into it as we go through 2 Samuel 6 this morning. But there's a lot of extra information, especially at the end in chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles. There's a few kingdom melodies, a few portions of different psalms that are sung at the end of that. That's fabulous, but we're going to finish in a different psalm this morning. So, background there. Now let's jump into 2 Samuel 6. So it says, after David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with, with him to Baale Judah, which is another name for Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up the ark, from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the, the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. You allowed to worship the God with instruments? 
Yeah, just making sure because it's there in the Bible. All right, there's a whole bunch going on here. Chronicles gives us the information that David's heart is stirring, and David pulls together a variety of leaders, and they take counsel together. They plan together. This is what I want to do. Here's my vision. I want to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. I am going to build a tent and the structure so that God can have a permanent resting place in Jerusalem and not be in this portable structure any longer. As we travel through the rest of the story, we're going to watch that yearning for him to build a temple, which Solomon, his son, is the one that ends up building that permanent structure. But we're, we're getting a snapshot of David's heart and his relationship with God, and he's communicating it to his advisors. So they come up with the plan together. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go get it. We're going to bring the ark in with celebration, and that's the snapshot that we see here where they're playing instruments and they're celebrating, and all is awesome. Before we go any further, I, wanted to, I want to define the ark of God for us, what it is. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Sorry, Billy, none of this is, I forgot to put it in there. Um, so in Exodus 20 right now, and then and then later we're going to be in Psalm 132. Neither one of those will be on the wall. So hope you got a Bible in your hands. If not, there's some on the back table, or you can use your phone. All right, here's the narrative. Children of Israel are slaves. They're in bondage underneath the nation of Egypt and all of that harsh bondage. They are crying out to God for decades and for centuries for that deliverance. God hears their voice. And in that, in the early chapters of Exodus, we see Moses as this protected child that he was preserved from the execution of the killing of the children of Israel from the Egyptians, right? So he's preserved in that. He's put in that basket in the water, that whole scene. So Pharaoh's daughter is the one that finds Moses. Did Moses grow up knowing that he was a Jew? Yes, he did. So forget the narratives, forget the movies. So Moses knew that he was a Jew as he was growing up. Do you know why? He was circumcised. So as he's growing up in the household of Pharaoh, he knows the privilege that he has in contrast to his brothers and sisters that are enslaved. So as he grows, it says that he goes out to his people and he's witnessing their persecution. He sees himself as a deliverer. God has placed me in this to this position in Pharaoh's household to help provide and deliver for the children of Israel. He sees that. And we're told that Moses is witnessing an Egyptian beating up on a Jew. And Moses looks this way, and then he looks that way, and he kills the Egyptian, and he buries the body in the sand. Then what does he do? Deliver the children of Israel? Runs away as a fugitive. And he's in the desert by himself runs into Jethro's family, does the macho man act of, you know, helping out the girls, watering the, watering the flock and driving out the, the other mean men, right? Jethro invites Moses into his home to marry his daughter. He is a nobody in the desert enjoying his life until God does what? God shows up miraculously and calls Moses to himself and gives Moses his calling there in Exodus chapter 3. He has this radical encounter with God, and we watch throughout Moses' life multiple radical encounters. 
but he has an incredible experience with his creator that he even talks back to God like, I don't want to go. Here I am, send me. That was not Moses. Moses was, "Uh uh-uh, send somebody else. So God forces him. Your brother Aaron is coming out, and the two of you are going to go together, and you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And through all of the judgments that God brings out and all of that miracle, I'm giving you all of this story because there's a lot of emotion that's going to feed into the religious worship of our creator as he's defined. So when God finally delivers his children out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt, they go out with singing and dancing and all of the provisions. They pretty much just rob the Egyptians because the Egyptians are giving them gifts and sending them away. We're told 600,000 men north of 20 years old. So you got to double that for wives. So that's 1.2 million people. At least double that for children. And then you have a mixed multitude. Some of the Egyptians are going with the Jews, recognizing that Yahweh is God, not the gods of the Egyptians. So you have a logistic, administrative nightmare leaving Egypt, going into a desert where there is no water, there is no food. All you get to do is trust the one who just delivered you out of your bondage. Did the people just freely do that in ease? Tons of complaining. God brought us out into this desert to kill us. Where's the water, Moses? Where's the bread, Moses? I'm sick of this manna, Moses. I want some meat. Know all these different stories? So it takes roughly 90 days, not roughly, exactly 90 days from their deliverance out of Egypt. God brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And in this, God is giving Moses very specific commands for the people. I am going to come. I am going to speak. I want you to tell the people to wash themselves, sanctify themselves, set, the, set yourself apart, prepare your own heart for a singular encounter with God that you will never experience again in your life. God, we are told here in Exodus 19 that God descends upon Mount Sinai physically in a cloud, and he speaks audibly to these roughly three million people that are at the foot of this mountain. And what God speaks, here's his words. Exodus 20, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. They just sat in the reality of that 90 days prior to God speaking these words. And I want you to have in your mind, If you heard this powerful voice booming from heaven right now, would you be a little bit timid? We would be on the ground. We would be shaking. We would be in awe. We would say, Lord, keep speaking. And at the same time, we would say, Lord, please stop speaking because we would be a mixed emotion encountering perfect holiness in who he is. His command in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He has demonstrated himself to be the creator of the heavens and the earth. He has demonstrated himself to have true power over the false gods of Egypt. And he has brought his kids out according to his promises. He is telling them, I am your God. You shall have no other gods before me. In your heart, in your mind, in your life, nothing else may be God. I am your creator. Command of God, yes? 
Number verse four, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This definition of jealousy is anything that interferes with your relationship with your creator, there is something that stirs up within God where that thing that is opposing your relationship with him, he's going to seek to get that out of your life and seek to get you to let go of whatever that interference may be. That's this definition of his jealousy. He is there to protect your relationship if you want it. If you want to abandon him, he'll let you. But if you want a relationship with him, his promise to you is anything that becomes an interference, he is there to deal with it. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. There is a consequence for sin is what God is saying. At the same time, uh, well, to those who hate me, he says, but at the same time, verse 6, showing mercy to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Make a choice. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is in emptiness. When you, when you cry out to God, when you say, God bless you, you know, may it be with all the weight of who God is in truth and all of his fullness. Don't be playing games with your relationship with God. Don't be playing religious games. Just saying things by rote is what it means to take God's name in vain. Yes, it applies to cursing, you know, you, you know taking the Lord's name in vain, you know, cussing in our culture, um, not the F-bomb kind of stuff, but, you know, you, you know, saying Jesus Christ's name is an expletive, that's the same meaning, but the weight of it is in your life. Don't let idle words escape your mouth in regards to your relationship with God. When you speak about him, all the fullness that he is, let that be the weight behind your relationship, your words, and your actions is what this command deals with. The next one, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. New Testament is very clear. Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. But I titled this morning's message, Resting Place. David is desiring to bring the ark into a permanent resting place. The psalm that we're going to get into identifies Jerusalem as the resting place of God. Our rest, our ceasing from labor, from striving to be good, for just striving for the things in life, whatever your desires may be, God is telling us that we find our true rest and our peace in him in him, in him alone, in all of the activity of life. The priests themselves, they profaned the Sabbath day because they were working on the Sabbath day, right? But they were still resting in the Lord as they were fulfilling his command. So all these first, how many is that? Is that the first four commands? Dealing with our relationship with God. Remember, this is the audible voice of God speaking to three million human beings 
that these words that he is speaking, he is going to end up with his own finger, whatever that looks like, penning these words into tablets of stone to give to Moses. So now not just your relationship with God, but your relationship with other people. Who's your primary relationship in life? With those who the Lord used to bring you into this world. Honor your father and your mother always. Why? Because they deserve it? We were just talking about this yesterday. No, that's my dad. That's my mom. And they deserve my honor. They deserve to be esteemed. They deserve to be respected. They deserve to be loved. And they have done nothing in my life to take that kind of honor and respect away. Some of you may have parents that don't deserve, based upon their behavior in your life, to have that kind of relationship. But still, the command is in right order. Children, love your mom and your dad. Listen to them. Relationships with other people. You shall not murder, dealing with violence. You shall not commit adultery, dealing with sex. You shall not steal, dealing with possessions. You shall not bear, bear false witness against your neighbor, dealing with truth. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's, dealing with desires. So love God, love people. Finger of God, writing down everything that God had spoken audibly. We come back here, we talk about this, we sit on this, because when we talk about the box, a wooden box that's overlaid with gold, it is a container for these tablets. That's the weight that it's to have with the nation of Israel. That's the weight that it's to have in our relationship with God. So when David is talking about bringing the ark into Jerusalem to give it a resting place, he's talking about the testimony, the covenant, the witness, the words of the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is what he spoke. This is what he wrote. That is what is inside the box. And the box has... It's no different than any other wooden box in the world other than God says that it's holy. Does that make sense? You are no different than any other human being in the world. Yes, God's created you, you as an individual. You have your personality. You have your uniquenesses and all that kind of stuff. But we're one amongst billions, right? The reason why you were special and you were chosen and you were loved is because the Almighty God chose to create you in the first place. He is the one that identifies you as holy through faith in his Son. He is the one that has identified this box, this container, as holy because of the words that he spoke and the tablets of stone that are meant to be a permanent representation in the culture of his words. Now, What's the lid of the box? It's totally separate from the ark itself. The box itself, it's wood that's overlaid in gold. The lid is not on hinges, but the lid itself is pure gold. Hammered out pure gold that has cherubim 
hammered out on both sides facing the middle. And God says that this lid, is its title is the mercy seat. It is to cover the law, the commandments, the testimony that God has just given to the nation of Israel. And God says, this is where my presence will dwell in your midst. This is where I will meet with you. This is where you will come and ask me. This is where you will petition and inquire before me. This is where I will answer. This is where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel. Is that awesome? That's awesome. But what's the issue with it? God says that box is going to go inside this tent structure. And the box and the mercy seat is going to go behind a veil. And the only person that can go behind that veil is the high priest. One man, one time per year, with the blood of a sacrifice to provide atonement, a covering for all the different way that the three million people that are there for all of their sins because God is holy dwelling in their midst and your sin needs a covering. That's the imagery. So as David, his emphasis and what he is attempting to do, he's already built another tent. The tent itself, again, it's holy because it's been designated as that space. His emphasis is not upon any of the rest of the furniture that God told him to build. The candle that has light to light that space is to represent the presence and the light of God. It's not David's emphasis. The altar of incense that is to represent our prayers ascending before the throne of God. That is not the heart of God, or that is not the heart of David in this circumstance. The table of showbread, these fresh loaves of bread, 12 of them that are to represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the presence of God. That is not the focus of David in this moment in his life. His focus is not just the box, but it's all the weight and definition in religious relationship with his God that the box represents. Where's the box today? Probably more than likely, like 99% sure does not exist. 99% sure during the Assyrian captivity, during the Babylonian captivity, that box was captured, it was dismantled, it was melted down for the gold, whatever, gone. But we are told in the New Testament that everything that we see in regards to this tabernacle and its furniture, it's a shadow. It's a picture of the reality in heaven. That mercy seat that's on top of the ark, it is to image for the, the nation of Israel the throne of God. It's identified as his footstool. So God is in heaven and that connection with him on earth, that's his footstool as the reigning king. This is where I will meet with you. This tent and the temple and all of these artifacts are totally gone today. So where's our hope? It's all in Jesus Christ. He is all of this imagery points to him. All of the imagery that we're going to sit in in David's life with the weight and the emphasis 
behind him bringing in this physical representation of the presence of God. It's, it's to be an image, not just for David personally, but for the community there in Jerusalem, for all the tribes of Israel in the land, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. This is to be a witness to everybody that Yahweh is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he and he alone is to be worshiped. So all of that is weight behind David's heart and the culture's heart as they go to Kiriath Jerem, 30,000 people, and they are there. So think about all the administrative nightmare, like where's all the kids? There's men there, there's women there, there's kids that are participating. Some people had to stay home. David's being hunted by the Philistines, so the military's got to be there to protect him. All of that administration is going on. But they're going there in celebration. They're going in joy. How do you think that that felt? You think that felt awesome? They're singing. They're dancing. They're proclaiming the praises of the Lord. But what are they doing? Stuff that feels good in direct disobedience to the will of God. So do your feelings have anything to do with what's real? Sometimes. But sometimes you can have the best feeling in the world, and you can be in direct disobedience to the will of God. David and the people think that they are doing what's right, what's good. Their motivations are good. It is right to bring the ark into Jerusalem. That is the will of God, but they're doing it wrong. They're doing it the way that the world taught them. When they took the ark into battle earlier in 1 Samuel and the, the ark gets captured by the Philistines, when the Philistines end up sending that ark back, they put the ark on a new cart and they send these cows that have calves. So the cows should go back to the calves, but they go straight into Jerusalem. This miracle is performed. So by the, by the Jews putting the ark on a new cart right now, they're imitating what the world does. The major issue that Corinthians tells us that David realizes later on, we didn't ask God how he wanted us to do this. We didn't go to God's word and see how God told us to carry the ark. The ark is to be carried by the priests alone, by poles that are in rings on the side of the box. It's to be carried physically But here they have it on a new cart. They're being disobedient. And then what are we told here? We got to get back to 2 Samuel 6. Says that when they came to Nacon's threshing for Uzzah, he's a priest, puts out his hand and he touches the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. So cart's kind of rocking, hits a pothole in the road, so to say, and he sticks out his hand to to stabilize the ark. And what happens? The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, for his sin, for his irreverence, for his negligence is what the word means. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place there Perez Uzzah to this day. So last week we watched God as the master of breakthroughs. If you have an enemy before you, we are told that God is the one who is going to break through that enemy. And now at the same time, Uzzah just put himself 
and the position of in opposition and an enemy of God through this disobedience, and God executed him. Are you angry with David? I'm going I'm to confess. This is my confession. I've read this passage I don't know how many times. Every time I read it, my initial reaction is to take issue with God. Like, come on. He was stabilizing the box, right? I mean, that's my initial response. But I know what's true. What God is giving to all of us a picture of, it's his holiness. He gave very clear instructions in regards to the construction of this artifact, what's inside it, what it represents, how it's to be handled, how it's to be covered, how it's to be carried. He's given very specific instructions. Nobody can touch it. It's holy. It's separate by definition of God. So when Uzzah, a priest of God, a servant of God, probably a good guy, touches the box, God, in his justice, took Uzzah's life. And David has our same, David was angry. I'm trying to do what's right here. I'm trying to lead the people to you, not away from you. And David struggles for a period of time. We're told in Chronicles, you can see that David goes back and he's having conversations with people and they finally crack open the Bible and say, wait a minute, oh, we were wrong. In our planning, we should have not just talked to one another and had a great idea and this feels good. We should have went and had a conversation with God and looked at his word to see what he, is going, what he tells us to do in regards to his stuff biggest thing that this communicates to me is, again, the, the incredible picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Every single one of us would be just as guilty as, as a touching this holy object, because we're not holy, and that's clearly defined. Jesus dying for our sins and simply coming to him in faith and believing that that's what he did, you have been made just as holy as that religious object that was to image his throne. And we are told that through faith in Jesus Christ, the Almighty God, his presence is always now here. My heart is now his mercy seat. My heart, my life, that he dwells within each one of us. It's, it is an absolutely incredible truth because I immediately want to respond like, who am I? I know that I'm unholy and unclean and I've sinned and I've made all these errors. I know how separate I am from the eternal God. I, I get it. And then I sit in that amazing declaration of what he did in sending his son and the evidence of the resurrection, and my heart just melts. I want to worship. And that ends up being what David does. So in verse 9, David, this, this interaction of celebrating the high emotion and everything that's going on. Uzzah is struck dead before the ark, before the Lord, by God. David's emotion goes to anger, and then that anger leads into fear in his life that David was afraid of the Lord that day because he realized that, that separation and that distinction. And he asked the question, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, 
which is he's from Gath. I'm not going to go into that because I don't have much time. He ends up becoming a gatekeeper, just for reference. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So it's there for three months. David's sitting in fear. They're having conversations. They're turning to the Lord in prayer. They're turning to the word. They, they, they now get this testimony that in verse 12, now it was told the king, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David hears all this. They get it all straight. Chronicles gives us the extra conversation. David goes up and he brings the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Again, there's been a transition. There's been a confession. We did this wrong. There's been a cleansing. We're going to do it right. We know what we're told to do. We're going with gladness. Verse 13, so it was... When those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Again, this is Kiriath Jerim, seven, eight miles north of Jerusalem, where Obed Edom's house is, like how far they traveled with the cart, we don't know. But you can tell this is a very slow procession for every six steps as they are carrying the ark, that they're sacrificing oxen and, and sheep. Incredible scene. It says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Seven times in this passage, the idea that this is all being done before the Lord in his presence for God. This isn't to be seen by people. This is the culture responding to who the Lord is. So here you're watching David is king. He is just getting down, dancing, excited. It's before the Lord. It's for the Lord. It's, it's he's, again, just the emotion the, the worship, the excitement, individually, culturally, it's awesome. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, shouting with joy and with the sound of the trumpet. Oh boy, I got to move fast. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. You ever judged anybody else's worship of God? I told Amber this morning, as you lead worship, invite everybody in, but don't let anybody pull out those flags and start running around the room, right? Am I the only one? It's a distraction for me. I mean, there's, there's sometimes that people could be fully, honestly, legitimately pouring out their heart before the Lord, whirling, dancing, speaking in time. You could be just total nuts and chaos, and it's before the Lord, and it's an awesome thing, and I can sit here in my unholy heart and judge that behavior. So wrong. Michael has major issues with David, and in her issues with David... She's judging his honest and legitimate worship of God. They have issues that they ought to have worked through in a different way. But she has, because she knows David's character and some of his other behaviors, she's despite, she has bitterness in her soul to David. Who are you to worship the Lord? Dancing and whirling and thinking that you're all holy and you're the leader and Mr. King and all this. All of this is pouring out of her heart because she has issues with David rather than joining in. Even if she's got issues with David, you know, we're to get those things right with other people. Um, 
But rather than condemning those who are worshiping God, man, let that be a motivator for your soul to join in that worship. I have to keep breaks in my own soul and judgment. You know, you see a lot of different Christian worship that can look like a lot of other things that may be confusing, that may irritate you a little bit. If it's legitimate, Lord, like, let them have at it. And if it's bothering me, then I can close my eyes and I can, and I can worship the Lord and I can try to block out everything else because I want to worship the Lord legitimately. And I, I have to believe, I'm not the judge of anybody's heart, that as people are seeking the Lord, man, may they do it with all their soul, mind, heart, strength, even if it includes flags and interpretive dance and jumping and whooping and hollering, you know, have at it. Amen? At the same time, as we come to church, we need to have a little bit of order. <laughs> How does that balance? I don't know. Just don't weird the pastor out and everything's all right. <laughs> Where am I? Despise them in her heart. All right. So they brought the ark of the Lord. They set it in its place, in its resting place, in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. This is consecrating this place. It's fellowship with God and with each other. This is all before the Lord, verse 18. When David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he's blessing the people in the name of the Lord of the hosts. He's distributing among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and the men. Uh, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. So just a fantastic feast day, celebration, all the emotion of it. Everybody's worn out. Everybody's got a gift. Now everybody's going home, talking on the road. Awesome experience. Verse 20, David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious, how heavy, how wonderful was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids, of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. Again, all the bitterness is pouring out of his heart. She's critiquing him. Uh, David says to Michael, listen, my behavior today was before the Lord. And the Lord chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified, literally small, in, insignificant than this, because she's critiquing him. Is that the behavior of a king, acting like all these shameless fellows, uncovered fellows, is her critique? David says, I'm going to be even smaller, more insignificant than my display today, and I am going to be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death as she's critiquing David for being uncovered. Um, that idea, when you're uncovered, it's displaying nakedness. No, David wasn't fully naked, but he's out there, you know, his royal robe is off, and he's in an ephod whirling and dancing before the people. He's uncovered himself as his royalty, so to say. It seems that the judgment means that Michael remained covered in David and Michael's relationship as husband and wife, that they ceased having intimate relationships as husband and wife. Worship team, come on up. 
We'll get back to some of that a little bit as we get into chapter 7. But as the worship team comes up, turn to Psalm 132. I shall not teach because we are out of time. But this is the only psalm. Look at me. I'm not going to teach, but I'm going to teach. This is the only psalm that mentions the ark. That's why we're going to read it in its structure. It is communicating a promise that David gave to the Lord, and then it communicates the promise that the Lord gave to David as we sit and turn to our God and worship in spirit and truth. Lord, Lord, remember David and all of his afflictions. How he swore, made a solemn promise to the Lord, and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up into the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This is David's heart in bringing the ark in. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah and Bethlehem, his hometown. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed in your righteousness only through faith. And let all of your saints shout for joy for your, for your servant David's sake. Do not turn your face away from your anointed. The Lord has sworn, here's the Lord's promise, in truth to David, he will not turn away from it. I will set, and there's all these I will statements of God, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. The if statement, speaking to individual kings, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them. Their sons shall also, also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Again, not physical Jerusalem. He's talking about the eternal new Jerusalem. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also close her priests with salvation. By the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all men, all women, you are a kingdom of priests. All of us are priests to the Lord. He shall close clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn, the power of David grow. And again, this is looking to the eternal David, Jesus himself. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. Um, it's, I will prepare a sun for my anointed. Again, pointing to Jesus. His enemies I will clothe with shame, that eternal separation from his presence. But upon himself, his crown shall flourish. Let us worship our great God, you priests and you saints. Let us shout aloud for joy. Amen.